Good morning. So glad you're with us today at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein, one of the pastors here. Uh, you know, this time last week we were gearing up, getting ready for trunk or treat. It was a big deal. Uh, I do think we had between five and six hundred people, so that was a lot of fun and a little crazy. Uh, but it was a, a blast. I talked to you last Sunday and said some of you are going to wear some crazy outfits, right? You're going to you're going to come wearing some craziness, and you did. But in my opinion, the best by far was uh, Jeff and Tana, right? Come here. The colonel and his chicken, right? So that was, that was pretty good. Thank you guys for uh, helping us with that. And yet still, the joy is still here with us for that. Uh, we also talked last Sunday a little bit about the fact that Paul is encouraging the Galatians to also put on a costume, but not really a costume, put on an identity of who we are in Christ. Uh, so we were, we've been in Galatians, we've been in chapter 3, where uh, at the end of the chapter, Paul says, we should put on this identity of Jesus. That's who we should be. Uh, that should be the greatest identifier in our lives. Not, not secondary, not third, not fourth. It should be at the very top of our priorities. It should literally be who we want to be, who we want the world to see in us. And when we're identified with Christ, when we've put on Christ, then we find out that we're actually one with one another. That in salvation, right, there is no Jew and Gentile or Jew and Greek. There is no slave and free. There's no male and female. We're one in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing about when we put on Christ, that we have an identity in him and we have a connection and a unity with one another. You know, this series in the last, definitely in the last chapter, Paul has made it so clear, this connection to uh, the father of the Jews, right? Uh, when he said the name Abraham, these, these ears perked up of the Judaizers. Oh, wait, Abraham, right? And I thought it would be helpful just to give sort of a simple little graphic that would show sort of this full circle nature of what Paul is talking about, right? We remember that, that God gave Abraham a promise. And so when God gives Abraham a promise, he says, even though he was uh, 75 when he first comes to Abraham and then 99 when uh, Isaac is born, he gives him this promise. He says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have an heir. Abraham thought it was going to have to be a servant. Because back in that day, if you didn't have a son, you'd have to, you could give your servant everything that you had. But God said, no, you're, the promise is you're going to have a son. And not just a son, you're going to have countless children. Look at the stars. You can't count the stars and you won't be able to count the children that you're going to have either. He also says you're going to have a land to possess, which is special, right? That's, that's a good thing to have. And to this day, uh, Jews are still in the land of Israel. But the most important part of the promise is the fact that through Abraham's line was going to come a blessing to every family on the earth. This unbelievable blessing. And we know that that blessing is realized in who? Jesus. And so through every, every family on earth can have the blessing of Jesus. Now, does that mean that every person on the earth and every family on the earth is going to go to heaven and be saved? No. It's real clear that there has to be an, an element of faith, right? Just as Abraham had faith and believed God was credited righteous, we in the same way have to believe that God is who he says he is and he'll do exactly what he says he will do. And when we do that, we have faith. And what's cool is when, when we see that happen, uh, then we're connected to that faith. So there's God's promise to Abraham. Then we saw that God gives the law to Moses, right? And then the law does something... Uh, pretty awesome. It shows us what we were just singing about, how holy God is, 
it shows us the unbelievable aspect of who our God is, the holiness of our incredible God. But it also shows us on the other side how unholy we are. Our desperate, desperate need for forgiveness. Our desperate need for a Savior, right? That's what the law does. And even if we try and keep the law, Paul says in Galatians that we're, it's like we're under a curse. And thank God that Paul also says that Jesus came to be a curse for us, right? So that's next. Jesus comes along. He, he fulfills the law. That's what Jesus does for us. He fulfills the law. He becomes a curse so that we don't have to be. He fulfills the law that we could never keep. He lives the life that we could never live, and he dies a sinner's death in our place. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God has done for us. And what we're going to see today as we get into it a little bit more is that after Christ has died, if we have faith, right, if we have faith and we believe this story of God, that what we get then is the spirit of the living God in our lives. And then we cry, Abba, Father. And in doing so, it kind of makes this full circular picture. You can show us the next one. We become heirs of Christ. We become sons and daughters of God. This beautiful aspect and kind of full circular nature of what God's plan was. That This is uh, Paul trying to show the Galatians. This plan of salvation by faith is not a new one. Right? All the way back to Abraham, and actually before that. A little bit, we're going to see that, that before the foundations of the world, God had a plan. And that in that plan, he works out exactly the times and things that he wants to work out. Because he's sovereign. He is in control. Amen? So, uh, today we get to talk about the fact that we've gone from being sinners and slaves under the law to sons of the living God. You know, there's uh, a lot of celebrities right now that are getting saved. And it's awesome. A lot of different celebrities are giving glory to God, and I don't have one negative thing to say. I, you know, um, if he can save me, he can save anybody. So I'm like, bring it on, Lord. And I'm hoping that this will usher in some sort of a revival or some sort of awareness. I, I noticed the other day that, that uh, in, at Google, uh, just the word salvation has taken a huge spike in interest in Google just because of some of the celebrities that have come to know the Lord. Well, somebody that I didn't like very much before he knew the Lord was Kanye West. Uh, he always had a scowl on his face. Now, if you see him now, he's got a big smile on his face. He said this. He said, now I'm letting you know what Jesus has done for me. And in that, I am no longer a slave. I'm a son now, a son of God. I'm free. I think Kanye has been reading Galatians. What do you think? This is the truth. When we have faith to know him and seek him and love him. We go from sinners and slaves to sons of the living God. So will you turn over your Bibles with me, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish the last verse in Galatians 3.29 here. It says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, 
than an heir through God. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin our time? Father God, you are so kind and so good, so loving. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can receive this inheritance, Lord, by faith. Lord, that we can know you, that we can love you, and that you give us the blessing and the promise that was given to Abraham. Lord, would you take your word today, open our hearts by your spirit that you've given us, lead us to all truth, help us to understand it, to know you more, to love you more. God, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, Lord, that you would anoint this time today, that your people would be blessed. And God, we just, we love you and we thank you for your kindness, Lord, to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Four things I want to bring up this morning about the promise uh, that God has given to Abraham, right? We don't have cards this morning. Our, evidently, our copier was one of the uh, casualties of the lightning strike a week or so ago. You see, we're still out of uh, this projector and many things around the c- campus, so um, you don't have notes today. So if you're taking notes on something else, here's the first note, all right? The first thing I want you to see about the promise is that there's a condition to it. It's a real simple, uh, right at the very first verse, I want to look at the first verse with you again. It says, and if you are Christ's, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what I want us to see that there's a condition to this promise, right? This, this sentence here is possessive in nature. If you are Christ's, have you surrendered to Christ? Have you given yourself to Christ? Do you belong to God? Are you his? Because sometimes our lives are lived in such a way that it doesn't look like we belong to anybody but ourselves. Our own decisions, our own way, our own opinions, what we think. Or maybe even worse, it looks like we belong to somebody else. The enemy. Or the world. Or culture. But Paul's making it real clear here. There's a condition to this promise. Number one... Do you know God? Are you his? There's a a surrender aspect to it. Like we talked about last week. Are you identified with Christ? Have you put on Christ? Is that what people see in your life? I'm not, not, not a, I'm an acquaintance of God, but I'm identified with him. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, the, um, in the, in the language of will and the language of inheritance, can you imagine being, being at a, a, your lawyer's office you're there with your brothers and sisters. Your parents have left, uh, have passed on, and they've left you an inheritance. And you're sitting with the, the brothers and sisters, and he's about to explain all the aspects of the trust or the will or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, this guy walks in, sits down, puts a coffee cup on the ta- table, you know, and the lawyer's looking at him, and the brothers and sisters are looking at each other like, who's this guy? The lawyer says, excuse me, sir, this is for family only. Who are you? He goes, I saw in the paper that Bill died. I just thought I would show up, see if maybe, per chance, maybe he left me something. Is that stupid? Yeah, it makes no sense. He's a stranger to the family. Of course, he's not going to have any connection. He's not going to have any inheritance. And yet, sometimes we think we're going to have this blessing or this gift of God, and we're not even hardly an acquaintance of God. We reserve maybe an hour on a Sunday, or we reserve a certain day once or twice a year to go to church, or occasionally we'll pray, Lord, help me because I don't know what I'm going to do. And the sad reality is for some people, maybe even in this room this morning, 
There may be a day where Jesus looks in your face and says, depart from me, I never knew you. I pray that that is not the case for your life. I pray that you know Jesus, that you have put on Christ, that you are Christ, that you belong to Christ. That is my prayer for you. But there is a condition to this promise. It's it's not something that we've done. It's a faith that we have. But here's the good news, friends. Listen, if you are in Christ, then you're an offspring of Abraham and an heir of God. If you are in Christ, right? So here, here's the thing. We talked about last week the fact that there's a vertical nature of our relationship with God, right? And our identity, identifying with Jesus, we are his. And there's a horizontal nature with one another. So we belong to God and we belong to each other. But there's something in addition to this, in this conversation about inheritance. We belong to the Lord, we belong to each other, but we also kind of belong to Abraham. And this is what I mean. When we come to know Christ, we are made sons and daughters, right? We are adopted into God's family. We're also made brothers and sisters, vertical, horizontal. But what's cool about the other aspect is we're also listed as the people of God. We're also listed in this line of faith. Are you familiar with Hebrews 11, right? The faith chapter. All these people who were fairly normal people for for the most part, right? They had faith in God. Now you, if you have faith in God, are listed in this long line. Maybe we we didn't make Hebrews, but we're, we're in the list. We are God's people. We belong to him, sons and daughters, to one another, brothers and sisters, and yet we are also the people of God. Here's the second thing I want you to notice about our text this morning. Not only is there a condition to the promise, but there's timing of the promise. Paul's going to talk to us a little bit about timing. Look at chapter 4 with me. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, uh, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. Now, you're going to see a couple of things here about the timing of the promise. Verse 2 and verse 4 both talk about timing things. One is going to give us an example or a metaphor of a child who's been left in inheritance, but he's too young to get it. And so the father has set a date and said, when he gets this age, then he can receive the inheritance, right? The other is in verse 4 when it talks about the fact that when fullness of time has come. We're going to dig that out in just a little bit. But Paul's given us this really interesting metaphor of a young child receiving an inheritance. Uh, you can imagine if, 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 you know, if my child, my nine-year-old, was left a, a large inheritance, uh, which she won't be, <clears throat> but uh, if, uh, if she was... It would, it would probably be a home, I've said this before, it would be a home full of chicken tenders and slime ingredients, right? There's, there's not a lot of wisdom given to children. You don't give a lot of money to children. In fact, the Greeks thought that age 20 was probably a, a, a time to be an adult. And the Romans thought age 25 was a pretty good time to be an adult. We, we call it 18 in the United States for most things. Um, but sometimes, even then, there's not a whole lot of wisdom. Paul's making this analogy with this inheritance aspect, speaking about the Jews, right? The father of the Jews, Jews has been given this promise, and yet this inher- they're not ready. They don't get to receive that promise because that promise 
is Jesus. He mentions the fact that they, uh, before they received Jesus, before the fullness had come, they were like, just like slaves. They had to live under the guardian of the law, the, the, the keepers of the law, because the promise had not yet come. And then he uses this really interesting phrase, being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, different commentators look at this differently. But I think what Paul's trying to say to us is that for those that have been raised in the Jewish faith, who have, he's already said, or have tried to live under this, this, as slaves under this system of righteous rules and laws and regulations, and he says we're cursed if we try to live under that. I think he's speaking about that in some, some degree, right? You're living as a slave under the law if you've been raised in this. But he's also speaking in a way to the Greeks in the sense that some of the religion of the Greeks is that they had a faith in the sun and the moon and the stars. So he talks about the universe, and sometimes these were our teachers, whether your religion was the law of, of the Jews or whether it was some universal religion. Paul is basically saying, I have preached to you Christ crucified. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? So Paul's saying this, why would you go back to the ABCs of the law or back to the ABCs of some other false religion when you can know the author of life? Why go back to things that don't make sense? I'm trying to give you direct connection to God. His name is Jesus. Why would you go back to those elementary principles? Well, one of the things that I think is so great about this text that I've just kind of settled into this week in my own study and, and time of the Lord is to realize that God's timing is always perfect. Uh, several years ago, probably over 20, maybe 25 years, or 20, what, probably 24 years ago, uh, I came in contact with this song, the gospel song. I like gospel music. And there's a lady by the name of Dottie People. She's a gospel artist. And she had a song uh, by the name uh, On Time God. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Right? Do you know this? Oh, sing it, Larry. <laughs> He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. You may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Because he's an on-time God. Yes, he is. So that's the reality of our on-time God, right? He may not come when you want him. When we all have an idea of, God, you ought to come right now in this moment because I have this need. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Listen, I think there's something we can dig out of this text this morning. Look at verse 4 in chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, and I want to stop after God. When the fullness of time had come, God. This is what I want you to see here. God is in control of time. There's no question about it. No, he's not limited by time. In fact, he's on every side of it. <laughs> he's long before us. He's long after us. He, he, he's the creator of time. I don't understand it. But I believe it with all my heart. He uses time uh, in a way that he has these dates Set. Like I said before, Revelation 13 says that before the foundations of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. What does that tell us? It means before the, the world was even created, God had a plan. 
before anything was created, before we were created, before we had even sinned and needed a Savior, He had a plan to redeem us when we did. He has a plan. When the fullness of time had come. The other day I was uh, making a recipe for something. I like to cook. I pulled out the little cup thing. I poured milk because the recipe called for one cup of milk, right? When I filled it up with milk, I poured it into the recipe. There was a preset design for the recipe. And when the milk had filled up the cup, it was ready to go and I could pour it in there, right? God has a preset design in time. And when the fullness of that time had come, he sent Jesus. Now, I want to make a couple of points about time and God's control over it. Ecclesiastes 3.17, he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every good work. God is in control uh, of time. You remember the moment where the disciples are sitting with Jesus and he's about to ascend into heaven? And, and sometimes they just, this is a moment of unbelievable, shocking uh, humanity by the disciples, right? And they're like, Jesus, and this is a, a palpable moment. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and somebody goes, so does this mean that the kingdom's going to be restored to Israel? Which is basically politics, right? This is a political question. Jesus is not concerned in that moment about politics, right? And so this is what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Father has fixed times and seasons. You know what the word fixed? It means that you can't mess with it. It's not going anywhere. You can't disrupt it. No president, no war, no nation, no bomb, no anything can change God's fixed appointed time. He's over it. He's over it. Don't get concerned about the things that we can't control. God is over these times and seasons. He's in control of when Jesus is coming back. Some of us are looking at our culture and looking at some of those politics going, uh, how about now, God? Will you come back now, right? Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Paul's saying there's an appointed time. It's a perfect time when Jesus will come back. It's already set. It's already set. There is a day in the future that's coming. And then Jesus explains that no one knows it, right? If you see something on Facebook about somebody saying Jesus is coming back on April 20th, laugh at it, right? Because of what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24. He says, but concerning that day, the day he returns, that day and hour, no one knows, not even angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. God is in control of time. But some of us are going, yeah, I, I get the big picture. I get the macro aspect of this, right? The, the sending of Jesus was on time. The, the coming back of Jesus is on time. The end of time, all those things. But what about me? What about this jacked up marriage I've got? What about this healing that has not come in my body yet? 
and I'm trying to live and make it in life? What about this broken relationship that I'm trying to walk in? God, are you listening? Are you you available? Do you have some sort of fixed time for that? Let's see what he says. Let's see what Peter says to that. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper, say it, time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What are the two things that that Peter says that we should do in this verse? Right? Humble ourselves and cast our cares upon the Lord. That's what you can do. You can come low. Lord, you're in control. I am under your mighty hand. You have got all things in your control. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fear because you're in control and you're a loving and good God. But then you can cast your cares. But here's what I'm afraid of. Here's my struggle. Here's my fear. Here's my doubt. Here's my questions. I lay them down at your feet. Why? Because You care for me. And when we do those two things, Peter says, at the proper time, God will exalt you. (laughs) He'll take care of you. He'll do exactly what he wants to do at the exact moment he wants to do it in your life. Do we believe that? What about the end of time? The end of all things, Psalm 75, 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. God is over time but i want you to see this other aspect of our text the timing of the promise yes condition of the promise but see that he's also the god of the promise the timing is going to take place why because he's the god of the promise he keeps the promise he's the keeper of the promise verse 4 says but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He's the God of the promise. First thing I want you to notice here is this beautiful, beautiful reference of the Trinity of God. You see it? God sends the Son. And then God sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And then because of that relationship, now we can cry, Abba, Father. Do you see that cyclical nature? The beauty of the Trinity of God. I think that's the first thing we should notice. There's a perfect time that God sent forth His Son. And when He did, it was a specific time. Sometimes we ask the question, why couldn't Jesus have been born now? It would have been so awesome to walk with Jesus, to know Jesus. And to... No, he was born at a specific purpose, a specific perfect, perfect time in ancient Israel. And this is telling us some of the details of that, right? He's born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born of, of a human woman, right? He's God and man. So he's born under that human flesh, under the demands of that Jewish law. He's born to a Jewish woman in a Jewish nation, and he comes to redeem us from it. Kind of in the same way Christ becomes a curse for us. 
He comes under this woman, through this woman, as God and man, so that he can redeem us from the expectations of that law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Look at, I love the way Paul tries to help explain that concept in Romans 8, 3, and 4. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Have we fulfilled the law? No, we can't. So Jesus came in this flesh. He came born of a woman and born under this Jewish law so that he could fulfill the law for us. John Stott says, the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ all go together to make him qualified, uniquely qualified, to be man's redeemer. God, man, and the man who lived righteously under that law and fulfilled it because we couldn't made him the perfect redeemer. So the question here for us this morning is this. What does this mean to us? What are the implications of the promise? That's the fourth thing. Right? There's a condition of the promise. There's timing of the promise. The God of the promise. And then lastly, what are the implications of the promise for us? What does it mean for us? Let's take a look here at verses 4 and 5 again. It says, um, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of woman, born under the law. Here it is, verse 5. Number one, to redeem those who were under the law. That's the first thing. That's the first implication. He's come to redeem us. We couldn't keep the law. He rescued us from its demands and regulations. Christ met all those expectations. But not only did he rescue and redeem us, he brought us into family, right? That's the second thing. He adopted us. As sons. He redeemed us and adopted us. No longer are we sinners and slaves under the law. He's brought us into family. Adopted sons of God. But it's not, it's not just the legal nature of adoption. There's also a relational nature of adoption, right? This is what I mean. Are you familiar with the story of Cinderella? Yeah, we probably all are. So Cinderella uh, had a father who loved her married sort of a mean woman. This woman, by law, adopted Cinderella. This was her stepmother. But then her father died. And her stepmother was very mean and cruel to Cinderella. She made her live in the nasty, dirty attic. And she played with rats and and animals. And, you know, it ended up pretty good because she could kind of talk to them somehow. But uh, she lived in a bad place. She had to do all types of awful cleaning She wasn't loved. See, there was a legal nature to the adoption. She was officially this woman's daughter, stepdaughter. But she didn't have relationship with this woman, right? This woman didn't care for her. She didn't love her. And the thing I want us to see this morning as part of the implication of being sons and daughters of God is that it's not just legal. He didn't just legally adopt us. He wants to draw us in to relationship. Look at what it says. Because you are sons, legally, God has also, he sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. 
See, Jesus came to secure our salvation for us. That was the job. That was the mission. Secure salvation for us, which in some ways could be seen as an external event. You might be saved and not, and not necessarily have a sense of, wow, that was some amazing thing. But that's not all that happens when you're saved, right? It's not just legal. It's not just external. This verse says that the Lord sends the Holy Spirit into your hearts. It's internal as well. So the job of Jesus is to secure our salvation. The job of the Spirit is to help us know that we're saved. Jesus does the work of salvation. The Holy Spirit helps us to experience salvation. Not only gives us the objective legal right to become sons, but he also, through the Spirit, gives us a subjective experience of being a son. You know, sometimes people can embrace the idea of the gospel cognitively and never embrace Jesus internally. You might be one of those people. Say, yeah, I know the story. (laughs) I get the concept. But let me just say something. If you're an heir of God, if you are saved, if you know Jesus as your Savior, it's not just a cognitive construct. It is an internal dwelling of his spirit that reminds you, you are are his praise god and let me tell you something this is one of the most beautiful aspects of being his when we are his we can cry abba father abba father the greek word here for crying is loud passionate purposeful that's what the greek word means here it's 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 a call it's a loud call For those of us that are parents, we're familiar with those loud calls, right? But the word Abba means Papa or Daddy. It's a diminutive of the Father. It's it's a relational connection. My greatest, most loved title in my life is Daddy. I waited for so long to be called Daddy. Twelve years we struggled in, in marriage, not having a child. And then we had a child. And one of the greatest things in my life is to hear my children say, Listen to the beautiful aspect of being called daddy is when my kids call out for daddy, it's because they know that I'm close enough to hear them, right? If I was at the store, they wouldn't be like, dad, they, they would know I'm too far away. I couldn't hear them. So when we cry out, I'm a father, we know God is close enough to hear. There's a proximity aspect of calling him daddy, but it's not just proximity it's relationship it's knowing that he's good it's knowing that he's loving it's knowing that he will come to our need right he's close enough to hear us and kind enough to come a few years ago i was in china when i was with the group new song and we we had an opportunity to see our the children that we were supporting Lori and I still support a child through that organization, Holt International. And and we were in this uh, orphanage. And it was a pretty rough place. I'd already been crying throughout the day. And we were in this big room, um, about as big as this middle section of chairs. And and there were about 20 baby beds all lined up in a row, full of babies. And most of them were wet. You could see they needed to be changed. And we're just standing there, and something didn't feel right in my heart. I couldn't make it. I couldn't figure out what it was. And as I stood there for a moment, I finally realized 
he was completely silent. There wasn't a peep. I couldn't hear babies crying. Like, that usually goes with a crib. That usually goes with a nursery. And 20 babies, somebody's going to be crying. And all of a sudden, it was eerily haunting. Why, why aren't these babies crying? And so then I, I said to the helper, I said, why, why aren't the babies crying? She said, well, babies are conditioned. So if, you, if you'll come when they cry, then they'll be conditioned to cry for you. But they're also conditioned when you don't. And these babies are used to no one coming, and so they don't cry. I couldn't hardly take that into my heart. I couldn't hardly take that into my brain and my experience. The silence of 20 babies with great needs and not one crying for help. It's the exact opposite of the relationship we have with our Father, God, our Abba, Father. When we cry out, Daddy, Papa, he's close enough to hear us and loving enough to come, to meet our need. When we, when we have true sonship with God, we can have the confidence that we are loved by God, right? that we are valued by God, even as Jesus is. I was thinking about this, this idea this week. I couldn't really wrap my brain around this, this truth. Look what Jesus said in John 17, 23. He said, I and them, and you and me. This is when Jesus is praying for the disciples, praying even for us, future disciples. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, look at, look at this, and loved them even as you loved me. Did you know that God loves you the same way he loves Jesus? Can you even take that into your heart, into your mind? God loves you in the very same way he loves Jesus. My dad owned a uh, store growing up. It was a food store, a deli. I thought it was the greatest place on the earth. And it was a special experience every time I got to go down to the store. In fact, when you pulled around the store, there was even a sign up top that said Cordell's, and underneath it it said family entrance. Oh, that's where we go in. Right? We pulled around to the back. We would park in the back. And, and when you're back in the very back, then you could walk in the back door. You're not supposed to walk in the back door, right? Unless you're family or work in there. And so I would walk in the back like I own the joint. Right? And I, when I was in high school, I would go through that back door and I would take some friends because I wanted to show off my dad's store. And I, I would get in the back. You want, you want Coke? Yeah, I'll go get you Coke. No big deal. You know? And I thought it was so much fun to pour a Coke. Hey, there you go. Free Coke. No big deal. You know? You want a sandwich? Okay, go, I'll go get it. Yeah. I'd cut the meat. I'd take it back there. They would fix it. It was like the greatest thing in the world. Here's the thing. It's because I was in the family. It's because my dad owned the place. I had privileges. I had a pride in the fact that this was my family. And that's the way we ought to walk in confidence with who our God is. Because he owns the place. Right? We are his. We are loved. We are valued. We ought to have confidence in our walk, in our lives, in knowing that we are his and we're valued. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
How many of you, when you have a real need, you just come to the Lord with confidence? I, I don't always do that. I come running with a need. I come fearful of what's going to happen. I come desperate sometimes. And not very often do I come to the Lord in confidence and go, Abba, Daddy, I know you've got this. Help me to know you've got this. Help me to trust you. We have confidence in whose we are and in our inheritance that we are loved and valued. And Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know why I love coming to church so much, one of the reasons? When we're worshiping together, God is doing something in my spirit. He's doing something in my heart. His spirit is reminding me that I'm his. Do you get a sense of that in your soul? Do you get a sense as the spirit of God confirming in your spirit that you are his? Or is it just a cognitive idea about some story? The Spirit of God literally reminds us that we are his children, that we are his heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the implications of the gospel. He redeems us. He adopts us. He gives the Spirit of God into our hearts in relationship. It's not just legal, it's relational connection to God. And when it's relational, we can call him daddy. Know that he's close enough and know that he'll come. That he loves us. We're valued. We're sons. We're heirs. The last verse in the text is this. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I want us to focus on the last two words. If you're a son, then you're an heir. How? Did you do something? Did you work really hard to get this status? Did you earn this? Nope. The last two words say what? Through God. That's, that's the only way. By his loving mercy and grace that we are sons and daughters of God. It's through God. Through him alone. So as I close this morning, let me ask you this. Are you an heir of this promise? Are you connected to Abraham? Are you, are you in that long line of people of faith? You believe God is who he says he is and he'll do exactly what he says he'll do. The very first, the way that our text begins this morning in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, if you belong to God, if your identity is in him, right? that's the question. Does God have ownership of your life? All of it. Or does part of your life still yours? Here, God, you stay over there. I'm going to do, I'm going to hold on to this. Ownership is hands up. Hands up. God, everything is yours. And as his, we know that he's in control of everything. Time. When Jesus comes, the first time when Jesus comes again as reigning king, 
even the moment that you trust him. And the thing that's interesting about that is the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today. There's an immediacy to it. So if in your heart and your soul and your spirit you're kind of going, I'm just not sure if I'm a child of God. I'm just not sure if I'm a son or daughter of God. Today is the day of salvation for you to know. And you can know. Don't let another moment, another day go without knowing for sure your placement with God. What are you waiting on? He's got a plan. Do you trust him with it? And then have you experienced, Christians, believers, have you experienced these implications of his promise? When you pray, is there, are there times you pray, Daddy God? Do you feel that close? I know some of you may have had some sort of abuse, uh, abusive fathers. And so for you to even acknowledge or think about God in a fatherly role is hard to do. But that's because you're looking at heavenly God through earthly God. And what it needs to be is the opposite. You need to look through heavenly God at earthly father, heavenly father. He's perfect. And that beautiful idea of daddy is that closeness that he wants to have with you. Do you see him that way? And maybe some of you need to come with confidence even to this altar this morning and say, God, I've got an issue. I need to humble myself. I need to cast my cares. I need to trust your timing. Before we close, I've got to tell you this little story. This week as I was studying, I ran across a story of a young African princess. We don't know her name, her African name. It was the 1850s. She was born in 1848 on the west coast, the slavery coast of Africa. She was a princess of a tribe, and another warring tribe came into her tribe and killed everybody except her. Killed her parents, killed everybody. And the king who killed the whole tribe, the king of that tribe, took her as a slave. She goes from being a princess of a tribe to a slave of another tribe. And he was going to sacrifice her and kill her. And a Christian, a man by the name of Captain Forbes in the British Navy, he comes to that king. He's, he's a Christian. He's a Puritan. And he says, please don't kill any more people. This king was selling his own people into slavery. Please stop selling people into slavery. And please don't kill this little girl. And the king said, well, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a gift, this little five-year-old girl, I'm going to give a gift from the king of the blacks to the queen of the whites. He gave this little girl to Queen Victoria of England. I'd never heard this story. Well, she goes back to England, and Queen Victoria adopts this child. <laughs> She's now the godmother of this little African girl. I love this story because it reflects our story with the Father. We too were slaves. We too were destined for death. And Jesus rescued us. This captain, his name was Captain Forbes, so when he brought this little girl onto his boat, he gave her a name. Sarah Forbes, he gave her his name, and then the name of his boat, Bonetta, the SS Bonetta. Sarah Forbes Bonetta, Jesus gave us a new name. And then Jesus gave us royalty. We are heirs of this promise, children 
sons and daughters of God. Where are you today with God? What's your experience like right now with God? My hope is that you're so close to him you can say, Daddy, and know that he's running to you. But if it's not, I would love to talk with you about it. I'd love to pray with you through it. So right now we're going to just sing a song. We're going to pray. And for those that need to come to this altar, you're welcome to do so. You may want to just, in the confidence of your sonship with the living God, you might want to stay right where you are and say, Lord, I just need to lay this down. But if we can help you today, I'll be up here. Brother Jerry will be over here. Would you pray with me as we seek the Lord? Father, like Sarah, God, you have rescued our lives, saved us from slavery and certain death, You've given us a new name and you've made us royalty. We didn't earn it, God. We could never earn it even if we tried. Lord, if there's one person here this morning that doesn't know you, if they, if they were to think, if I were to die today, I just don't know if I would even go to heaven or hell. I don't know, God. They can know that question. They can know that answer today, God. Would you draw them to the front of this church? to this altar, let us have an opportunity to share with them the beauty of the gospel. That none of us deserve it. And that we're lost without it, God. God, thank you that you would take a sinner and a slave such as I and that you would now call me son and you would give me the privileges of sonship. that in the brokenness of my life, I can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, and that you'll come running every time. Lord, would you do a work in this place right now by your spirit? Father, if there's one person here that needs to come to this altar and and just seek you and, and find you and say, Lord, I've just been giving tiny bits of myself. Lord, I want you to, to take all of me God, would you lead them to this altar? Ultimately, Lord, lead us all our hearts, God, to your throne room in confidence, to know you, to love you, to walk in you. Meet us here, God, in this beautiful moment of surrender to you. In Jesus' precious name.